Hi everyone, welcome to episode 260 of Greater Than Code. I am Artie Starr and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Mandy Moore. Thank you, Artie. And I'm here with our guest today, Ian Douglas. Ian has been in the tech industry for over 25 years and suggested we cue the Jurassic Park theme song for his introduction. Much of his career has been spent in early startups planning out architecture and helping everywhere and anywhere like a Swiss army knife engineer. He's currently live streaming twice a week around the topic of tech industry interview preparation and loves being involved in developer education. Welcome to the show, Ian. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. So we like to start the show with our famous question, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Probably curiosity. I've always been kind of a very curious mindset of wanting to know how things work. Even as a little kid, I would tear things apart just to see how something worked. My parents would be like, okay, great, put it back together. I'm like, I don't know how to put it back together. So they would come home and I would just have stuff disassembled all over the house. And yeah, we, we threw a lot of stuff out that way. But, you know, it was just kind of a, a curiosity of how do things work around me? And that led into computer programming, learning how computers worked. And that just sort of made the light bulb go off in my mind as a little kid of, you know, I get to tell this computer how to do something. It's always going to do it. And that just led, of course, into the tech industry where you sign up for a career in the tech industry, you were signing up for lifelong learning. And there's no shortage of trying to satiate that curiosity. I think it's just a a never-ending journey, which is fantastic. When did you first discover computers? What was that experience like for you? I was eight years old. I think it was summer or fall of 1982, I believe. My dad came home with a Commodore 64. My dad was always kind of a gadget nut. Anything new and interesting on the market, he would find an excuse to buy. And so he brought home this Commodore 64 thinking, you know, family computer. But once he plunked it down in front of me, it sort of became mine. I didn't want to share. And I grew up in Northern Canada, way, way up in the Northwest Territories. And in the wintertime, we had two things to do. We could go play hockey or we could stay indoors and not freeze. So I spent a lot of time indoors when I wasn't playing hockey, played a lot of hockey as a kid. But when I was home, I was basically on this Commodore 64 all the time, playing games and learning how the computer itself worked and learning how the programming language of it worked. Thankfully, the the computer was something I never took apart. (laughs) Otherwise, it would have been a, a pile of junk. But yeah, just spending a lot of time just learning all the ins and outs. And and back then the idea was you could load the software and then you type a run command and it would actually execute the program. But if you type a list, it would actually show you all the source code of the program as well. And that kind of raised my curiosity, like what is all this, you know, symbols and what all these words mean. And in the back of the Commodore 64 book, it had several chapters about the basic programming language. So I started kind of picking apart all these games and trying to learn how they worked. And then what would happen if I changed this instruction to that and started learning how to sort of hack my games, usually break the game completely, (laughs) but trying to hack it a little bit, you know, what if I got like an extra ship and an extra level, or what if I, you know, changed the health of my character or something along those lines. And it just, it kind of snowballed from there. Honestly, it was just this fascination of, oh, cool. I get to look at this thing. I get to change it. I get to apply it. And then of course, back in the day, 
you would go to like a bookstore and you'd have these magazines with just pages and pages and pages of source code. And you'd go home and you'd type it all in expecting something really cool. And at the end of it, you run it and it's like something bland, like, oh, you just made a spreadsheet application. It's like, oh, I wanted a game. Like, shucks. (laughs) But, you know, as as a little kid, that kind of thing wasn't very enticing. But I'm sure as an adult, you know, it's like, oh, cool. Now I have a spreadsheet to track budgeting or whatever at home. And it was this whole notion of open source and just sharing knowledge. And that really stuck with me too. And so as I would kind of try to satiate this this innate curiosity in myself and learn something, I would go teach it to a friend. And it's like, hey, hey, let me show you what I just did. I learned how to play this thing on the piano, or I learned how to sing this song, or I learned how to, you know, use a magnifying glass to, you know, cook an ant on the sidewalk. <laughs> like just whatever I learned, I always wanted to turn around and teach this somebody else. It was and I would get sometimes more excitement and joy out of watching somebody else do it because I taught them than the fact that I was able to learn that and do it myself. And so after a while, working on the computer became kind of a, oh yeah, okay, I can work on the computer. I can do the thing. But if I could turn around and show somebody else how to do that and then watch them explore and you watch that light bulb kind of go off over their head, then it's like, oh, they're going to go do something cool with that. And just the anticipation of like, how are they going to go use that knowledge? That really stuck with me my whole life. In high school, you know, doing kind of like little bits of tutoring here and there. I was a paid tutor in college. Once I got out of college and got into the workplace, again, just learning on my own and then turning around and, and teaching others led into, you know, running my own web development business where I was teaching some friends how to do web development because I was taking on so much work that I had to subcontract it to somebody where I wasn't going to meet deadlines. And so I would subcontract to them. And that meant that I got to pay my friends to sort of help me with this business. <laughs> and uh, and so that kind of kicked off. And then I started learning, well, how do servers work? And how does the internet work? And how do I run an email server on, on all this stuff? And so just never-ending stream of, of knowledge going on in the internet. And then just turning around and sharing that knowledge and, and kind of keeping that community side of things building up over time. Very cool. So in your bio, it said you're streaming now. So I'm guessing that's a big part of what you do today with the streaming. So what are you streaming? So let's see, back in 2014, I started getting involved in mentorship with a local code school here in Denver called the Turing School of Software and Design. And it's the seven-month code program. And they were looking for someone that could help just mentor students. They were teaching Ruby on Rails at the time. And so I got involved with them. I was working in Ruby at SendGrid at the time where I was working, who was later acquired by Twilio. And I'm like, yeah, I got some extra time. I can help some people out. You know, I like giving back and I like the idea of sort of tutoring and teaching. And I started started that mentorship and it kind of quickly turned into, hey, you know, do any of our mentors know anything about resumes and hiring and interviewing and things like that? And by that point, I had been a lead engineer. I had done hiring. I you know, hired several dozen engineers at SendGrid or helped hire several dozen people at SendGrid. And I'm like, yeah, I've looked at hundreds and thousands of resumes. Like, what can I help with? And so I kind of quickly became the career development guy to help them out. And over time, the school started developing their career development curriculum. And I like to think I had a, a hand in, in developing some of that. And three years later, they're like, you just want a job here? Like you're helping so many students, like you just want to come on staff. And so I joined them as an instructor, taught the back end program, had a blast, did that for almost four full years. 
And then when I left Turing in June of 2021, I thought, well, I still want to be able to share this knowledge. And so I took all these notes that I had been writing and I basically put it all onto a website called techinterview.guide. And when I finished teaching, I'm like, well, I still miss like sharing that knowledge with people. And I thought, how else can I get that knowledge out there in a way that is scalable and manageable by one human being? And I thought, well, you know, I'll just kind of see what other people are doing and kind of fumbled around on YouTube and watched some YouTube videos and watched people doing live streaming on LinkedIn and live streaming on Facebook and live streaming on YouTube and trying to think, you know, could I do that? No, I don't know if I could do that. And a friend of mine named Jonan Scheffler, he currently works at New Relic, he does a live stream. And uh, so I was hanging out on his stream one night and it was just so much fun seeing people interact in chat and how they kind of engage the people in the chat and answering questions for them. And I'm like, I wonder if I could do that. And the curiosity kind of took over from there. Uh, and you can kind of imagine where that went, went way down some rabbit holes on how to set up a streaming computer and, and uh, started streaming and found out that I wasn't very good at audio routing and recording things and, and uh, you know, marketing, all that kind of stuff. But, but I kind of fumbled my way through it. And Jonan was very generous with his time to help me sort of straighten some things out. And it kind of took off from there. And so I thought, well, now I've got a platform where I can share this career development advice. Having been in the industry now for 25 years, now I've been director of engineering. I'm currently the director of engineering learning at a company. I've got an education background now as an instructor for several years. I've been doing tons of mentoring. Like it's like, I just, I love to give back and I love to kind of help other people learn a thing that's going to help improve their life. And I kind of think of it like a ripple effect. Like I'm not going to go out and change the world, but I can change your world. And that ripple effect is going to change somebody else's world. And that's going to change somebody else's world. And so that's how I see my part in all of this play out. I'm not looking to be like the biggest name in anything. I'm just one person with a voice and I'm happy to share my ideas and my perspectives, but I'm also happy to have people on my stream that can share their ideas and perspectives as well. I think it's important to hear a lot of perspectives, especially when it comes to things like job hunt and interview prep and how to build a resume. You're going to see so much conflicting advice out there. Like, this is the way you should do it. And someone else will be like, no, this is the way you should do it. Meanwhile, I'm on the sidelines going, you can do it all of that way. Like just, you know, listen to everybody's advice and figure out how you want to build your resume. And then that's your resume. It doesn't have to look like the way I want it or the way that someone else wants it. It can look how you want it to look. This is just our advice kind of collectively. And so the the live stream kind of took off from there. And uh, I've got, you know, only a couple of hundred followers or so on Twitch, but it's been a lot of fun, like just engaging with chat and people are submitting questions to me all the time. So I do a lot of Q&A sessions, like ask me anything kind of sessions. And uh, yeah, it's just been a ton of fun. That's awesome. I I love the idea of focusing on one person and how you can make a difference in that one person's life and how those differences can ripple outward. And that one-on-one connection, I feel like if we if we try and just broadcast and forget about the individuals, it's easy for the message and stuff to just kind of get lost in the ether and ether waves and not actually make that connection with one person. And ultimately it's, it's all those ones that add up to the many, you know? Definitely. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about the tech interview guide and what your philosophy is regarding tech interviews? 
the tech interview process in, well, I mean, just the interview process in general in the tech industry is, is pretty broken. It lends itself very well to people who come from position and privilege that they can afford expensive universities and have oodles and oodles of free time to go study algorithms for months and months and months to go jump through a whole bunch of hoops for companies that want four or five, six rounds of interviews to try to determine whether you're the right fit for the company. And it's just super broken. There are a lot of companies out there that are trying to change things a little bit. And I, I applaud them. It's going to be a tough journey for sure, trying to convince companies like, hey, like this is not working out well for us as candidates trying to apply for jobs. As a company, though, I understand because I've been a hiring manager that you need to be able to trust the people that you're hiring. You need to trust that they can actually do the job. Unfortunately, a lot of the tech interview process does not adequately mimic what the day-to-day responsibility of that job is going to be. And so the whole philosophy of me doing the tech interview guide is just an education of, hey, here's, here's my perspective on what you're likely to face as a technical interview. These are kind of the different stages that you'll typically see. I have a lot of notes on there about how to build a resume, how to build a cover letter, thoughts on you know building a really big resume, and then how to trim it down to one page to go apply for a particular job. You know, how to write a cover letter that's customized to the business to really position yourself as the best candidate for that role. And then some chapters that I have yet to write are going to be things like, how do you negotiate once you get an offer? Like, what, what are some negotiation tips? And I've shared some of them live on the stream and I share uh, like kind of a, a growing amount of information as I learn from other people as well then I'll turn around, I'll share that on the stream. And so the content that's actually on the website right now is probably three, four years old, some of it at least. And so I'm constantly going back in and I'm trying to revamp that material a little bit to kind of be you know, as modern as possible. I used to want to go like a self-published route where I actually made a book. Uh, several of my friends have actually gone through the process of actually making a book and getting it published. And I'm like, oh, I want to do that too. My friends are doing that. I could do that too. And I got looking into it. It's like, okay, it's an expensive, really time-consuming process. And by the time I get that book on a shelf somewhere, a lot of the information is going to be out of date because a lot of things in the tech industry change all the time. And so I decided I would just self-publish an online book where I can just go in and I can just constantly refresh the information and people can go find whatever my current perspective is by going to the website. And then as part of the website, I also have a daily email series that people can sign up for. And I'm about to split it into four mailing lists, but right now it's a single mailing list where I'm presenting technical questions and behavioral questions that you're likely to get asked as a web developer getting into the business. But I don't spend time in the email telling you how to answer the question. What I do instead is I share from the interviewer's perspective, this is why I'm asking you this question. This is what I hope to hear. This is what's important for me to hear in your answer. Because there's so many resources out there already that are trying to tell you how to craft the perfect answer where I'm trying to explain like, this is why this question is important to us in the first place. And so I'm kind of taking a a little bit different perspective on how I present that information. And to date, I've sent out, I don't know, something like 80,000 emails over a couple of years to, to folks that have signed up for that, which has been really tremendous to see. I get a lot of good feedback from that. But again, that information, you know, it doesn't always age well. And interview processes change. And so I'm actually going through the process right now in the month of November to uh, rewrite a lot of that information, but then also break it out into multiple lists. And so 
where right now it's kind of a combination of, you know, a little bit of technical questions, a little bit of behavioral questions, a little bit of procedural, like what is an interview and so on. Now I'm actually going to break them out into separate lists of this list is all just technical questions. And this list is all just behavioral questions. And this list is going to be like general process. And then sort of like the, the process of going through the interview and how to do research and so on. And then the last one is just general kind of questions and answers. And a lot of that is stemmed from the questions that people have submitted to me that I answer on the live stream. So it all, it all kind of packages up together. That's really cool. I'd like to get into some of the meat of the material that you're putting out here. So as far as, you know, what are some of the biggest questions that you get on your stream? Probably the most popular question I get, because a lot of people that come by the stream and find the daily email list are new in the industry and they're trying to find that first job. And so by far the number one question is how do I even get a job in the industry right now? I have no experience. I've got some amount of education, whether it's an actual CS degree or something similar to a CS degree, or they've gone through a boot camp of some kind. How do I even get that first job? How do I position myself? How do I differentiate myself? How do I even get a phone call from a company? And that's a lot of what's broken in the industry. Everybody in the industry right now wants people with experience or they're saying like, oh, this is a quote unquote entry level role, but you must have three to four years experience. It's like, well, it's not entry level if you're asking for experience. Like you can't be both, right? All they're really doing is they're they're calling it an entry level role. So they don't have to pay you as much. But if they want three or four years experience, then you should be paying somebody who has three or four years experience. Like, uh, So the people writing these job posts are off their rocker a little bit. But that's by far the number one question I get is how do I even get that first job? Once you get that first job and you get a year, year and a half, two years experience, it's much easier to get that second job or third job. It's not not like, oh, you know, I'm going to quit my job today and have a new job tomorrow. But the time to get that next job is usually much, much shorter than getting this first job. I know people that have gone months and months or nearly a year just constantly trying to apply, getting ghosted, like not getting any contact whatsoever from companies where they're sending in resumes and trying to apply for these jobs. And again, it's just a big indication of what's really broken in our industry that I I think could be improved. Uh, I think that there's a lot of room for improvement there. So what do you tell them? What's your answer for that? How How do they get their first job? How do you get your first job? That's a, <laughs> that's a good question. And, and I, I hate to fall back on the it depends answer. It really does depend on the kind of career that you want to have. I tell people often in my coaching that the tech industry is really a choose your own adventure kind of book. Like once you get that job, you know a little bit better what you want your next job to be. And so you get to choose. If you get your first job as a QA developer, or you get that first job as a technical writer, or you get that first job doing software development, or you get that first job in DevOps, and then decide you don't want to do that anymore, that's fine. You can position yourself to go get a job doing some other kind of technical job that doesn't have to be what your previous job was. Now, once you have that experience, though, recruiters are going to be calling you and saying, hey, you had a QA role. I've also got a QA role. And you just have to stand firm and say, nope, that's not the direction I'm taking my career anymore. I want to head in this direction. So I'm going to apply for a company where they're looking for people with that kind of direction. And it really comes down to how do you show the company what you bring to the company and and how you're going to make the company better, how you're going to make the team better, what skill and experience and background are you bringing to that job? 
a lot of people, when they apply for a job, they talk about what they don't have. Like, oh, I'm an entry-level developer, or I only went to a boot camp, or I don't know very much about some aspect of development. Like, I don't know test-driven development, or I don't really understand object-oriented programming, or I don't know anything about Docker, but I want to apply for this job. Well, now you're highlighting what you don't have. And to get that first job, you have to highlight what you do have. And so I often tell people like on your resume, on your LinkedIn, don't call yourself a junior developer. Don't call yourself an entry level. Don't say you're aspiring to be. You are. You are a developer. If you have studied software development, you can write software. You're a software developer. Make that your own title and let the company figure out what level you are. So just call yourself a developer and start applying for those jobs. The other advice that I tend to give people is you don't have to feel like you meet 100% of the requirements in any job post. As a hiring manager, when I write those job posts, often it's like, this is my birthday wish list. I hope I can find this mythical unicorn that has all of these (laughs) traits and skills and characteristics. And that person doesn't exist. In fact, if I ever got a resume where they claim to have all that stuff, I would immediately probably throw the resume in the bin because they're probably lying. Because either they have all those skills and they're about to hit me up for like double the salary or they're just straight up lying that they really don't have all those skills. And as a hiring manager, those are things that we have to kind of discern over time as we're evaluating people and and talking with them and so on. But I would say if you meet like 30 to 40% of those skills, you could probably still apply. The challenge then is when you get that phone call, how do you convince them that you're worth taking a shot? that you're worth them taking the risk of hiring you, helping train you up in the skills that you don't have. But on those calls, you still need to present, this is what I do bring to the company. I'm bringing energy, I'm bringing passion, I'm bringing other experience and background and perspectives on things, hopefully from like uh, just increasing the diversity in tech, just as an example, you're coming from a like a background or a walk of life that maybe we don't currently have on the team. And that's great for us and great for our team because you're going to open our eyes to things that we might not have thought of. And so I think like apply anyway. If they're asking for a couple of years of experience and you don't have it, apply anyway. If they're asking for programming languages you don't know, apply anyway. The languages you do know, a lot of that skill is going to transfer into a new language anyway. And I think a lot of companies are really missing out on kind of the malleability and the like how they can shape an entry-level developer into the kind of developer and kind of engineer that they want to have on the team and now use that person as an example and say, now we've trained them with the process that we want, with the language and the tools that we want. They know kind of the company goals. We've trained them. We've kind of built them up. We've kind of uh, invested in them. And now everybody else we hire, we're going to kind of hold to that standard and say, this is, if we're going to hire from outside, this is what we want. And if we hire someone who doesn't have that level of skill, we're going to bring them up to that skill. I think a lot of companies are missing out on that whole aspect of hiring. That is, they can take a chance on somebody who's got the people skills and the collaboration skills and that background and the experiences of life and not necessarily the technical skills and just train them on the technical skills. I kind of went on a rant on this on uh, on LinkedIn the other day where I was saying like the the return on investment if a company is spending months and months and months trying to hire somebody that's expensive. You're paying a recruiter, you're paying engineers, you're paying managers to screen all these people, interview all these people and you're not quite finding that 100% skill match 
well, what if you just hired somebody months ago, spend $5,000 training them on the skills they didn't have, and now you're months ahead of the game. You could have saved yourself so much money, so much time, you would have had an engineer on the team now. And I think a lot of companies are kind of missing that point. Sorry, I, I know I get very soapboxy on uh, on some of this stuff. I mean, I think it's important of just highlighting these dynamics and stuff that are broken in our industry and all of the, the hoops and challenges that come with trying to get a job. You mentioned a couple of things on the other side of one is that the interview processes themselves don't align to what it is we actually need skill-wise day-to-day. What are the things that you think are, are driving the creation of interviews that don't align with the day-to-day stuff? Like what factors are bringing those, th- those things so far out of alignment? That's a great question. I would say I have my suspicions. So, I mean, don't take this as gospel truth, but the, like from my own perspective, this is what I think. The big, big tech companies out there, like the big fan companies, they have a very specific target in mind of the kind of engineers that they want on their team. They have studied very deep data structures and algorithms and kind of the systems thinking and system design and all the stuff. Like they've, they've got that knowledge, they've got that background because those big companies need that level of, of knowledge for things like scaling to billions of users and highly performant and, you know, uh, resilient systems where the typical startup and typical small and mid-sized company, they don't typically need that. But those kinds of companies look at FANG companies and go, we want to be like them. Therefore, we must interview like them. And we must ask the same questions that they ask. And I think that it has this cascading effect where when FANG companies do interviews in a particular way. We see that kind of, again, with this ripple effect idea, we see that kind of ripple down in the industry. Back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, well, I guess right around the time when when Google was getting started, they were asking a lot of really oddball kinds of questions, like how many golf balls fit in a school bus? And like those were their interview challenges. It's like, how do you actually go through the calculation of how many golf balls would fit in a school bus? And after a while, I think by 2009, they published a, an article saying, yeah, we're going to stop asking those questions. We weren't getting good signals. Everybody's kind of breaking down those problems the same way. And it, it wasn't really helpful. Well, leading up to that point, everyone else is like, oh, those are cool questions. We're going to ask those questions too. And then when Google published that paper, everyone else is like, yeah, those questions are dumb. We're not going to ask those questions either. And then they started kind of getting into what we now see as like the leak code hacker rank type of technical challenges being asked within interviews. And I think that there's a time and place for some of that, but I think that the the types of challenges that they're asking candidates to do should still be aligned with what the company does. And like one criticism that, that I've got, uh, for example, I was looking at a technical challenge from one particular company that they asked this one particular problem and it was it's using a data structure called a heap. And it was find the you know, find a quantity of location points closest to a target. So you're given a list of like latitude and longitude values, and you have to find like the five latitude and longitude points that are closest to a target. It's like, okay, you know, and so I'm like thinking through the challenge, like how would I solve that if I had to solve it? But then I got thinking like that company has nothing to do with latitude and longitude. That company has nothing to do with geospatial work of any kind. Why are they even asking that problem? Like it's so completely misaligned. 
that anybody they interview, that's the first thing that's going to go through their mind as a candidate is like, why are they asking me this kind of question? Like, this has nothing to do with the job. It had nothing to do with the role. I don't study global uh, sort of positioning and, and things like that. Like, I know what latitude and longitude are, but I've never done any kind of math to try to figure out like what those things would be and, and how you would detect differences between them. Like, I could kind of guess with simple math, but like, unless you've studied that stuff, it's not going to be this, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. It's this formula, whatever. We shouldn't have to expect that candidates coming to a business are going to, A, have that formula memorized, especially when that's not what your company does. So, you know, and a lot of companies are like, oh, we've got to interview somebody quick, go to leak code and find a problem to ask them. All you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to bias your interview process towards people that have studied those problems on leak code. And you're not actually going to find people that can actually solve your day-to-day challenges that your company is actually facing. And instead, you're selecting for people that are really good at things that, you know, you don't even need. <laughs> you know, it's like, all yep. right, like it, it it's, it's totally skews who you end up hiring toward right. people that aren't even necessarily competent in the skills that they actually need day to day. Like, you know, you mentioned yep. like fang companies need these particular skills. And I don't even think that you know, for resilience and, you know, to be able to build these sort of systems. And I mean, even on like, you know, super hardcore systems, it's very seldom that you end up like writing algorithmic type code. Like usually most of the things that, you know, you deal with in, in scaling and working with other humans and stuff, it's, it's a function of design and being able to organize things in conceptual ways that make sense so that you can deconstruct a, you know, complex, fuzzy problem into little pieces that make sense and can fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And I have a very sort of visual geometric way of sort of thinking, which I find actually, you know, is a, you know, core ability that makes me good at code because I can, I can imagine it visually laid out and, you know, think about, the dependencies between things as like, you know, tensors between sort of geographically located little code bubbles, if you will. And being able to think that way, is fundamentally different than solving algorithm stuff. But that sort of deconstruction capability of just problem breakdown, being able to break down problems, being able to organize things in ways that make sense, being able to communicate those concepts and come come up with abstractions that are easy enough for you know other people on your team to understand like ideally those are the kinds of engineers we want on the teams and our in our interview processes ought to select for those day-to-day skills of things that are you know the common bread and butter <laughs> Mm-hmm. I agree. What we need to succeed on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, we need the people skills more than we need the hard technical skills sometimes. And I think if our interview process could somehow tap into that and focus more on how do you collaborate? How do you do code reviews? How do you evaluate someone else's code for quality? How do you make the trade-off between readability and optimization? Because those are typically very polarized opposite ends of the scale how do you function on a team or do you prefer to go heads down and just kind of be, you know, by yourself and, you know, just tackle tasks on your own. 
And I believe that there's a time and place for that too. And there are personality types where you just, you prefer to go heads down and just have peace and quiet and just get your work done. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think if we can somehow tap into the collaborative process as part of the interview, I think it's going to open a lot of companies up to like, oh, this person's actually going to be a really great team member. They don't quite have this level of knowledge in database systems that we hope they'd have, but that's fine. We'll just send them on this, you know, one week database training class that happens in a week or two. Do they want to learn? Now they'll be trained. Right. Do they want to learn? Are they eager to learn? Because if they don't want to learn, then that's a whole other thing too. But again, that's something that you can kind of screen for. Like, tell me what you're learning on the side or like what kinds of concepts do you want to learn? Or in this role, we need you to learn this thing. Is that even of interest to you? Of course, everyone's going to lie and say, yeah, because they want the paycheck. But I think you can still narrow down a little bit more like what area of training does this person need so that we can just hire good people on the team and now our team is full of good people and and you know collaborative team based folks that are willing to work together to solve problems together and then worry about the technical skills as a secondary thing yeah i I firmly believe anybody can learn anything if they want to Mm -hmm. i mean I, i i that's how i've gotten here yeah, for sure. Same with me. I'm mostly self-taught. I, I studied computer engineering in college, so I can tell you how all the little microchips in your computer work. And I mean, I did that for the first four years of my career, and then I threw all that out the window. And I taught myself web development and taught myself how the internet works. And then every job I had, that kind of innate curiosity in me is like, oh, I wonder how e-commerce works. And well, I went and got an e-commerce job. It's like, okay, well, now I wonder how education works. And I got into the education sector. Now I wonder how you know, this or that works. And so I got into like financial systems and I got into whatever. And it just kind of blew my mind of like, wow, there's like, this is how all these things kind of talk to each other. And that for me was just fascinating. And then, you know, turning around and sharing that knowledge with other people. But some people are just very fixed mindset and they, you know, they want to learn one thing, they want to do that thing and that's all they know. But I think like we, we kind of talked about early in the, in the podcast, like you sign up for a, a career in this industry and you're signing up for lifelong learning. There's no shortage to things that you can go learn, but you have to be willing to do it. Rarely does a day pass where a ransomware attack, data breach, or state-sponsored espionage hits the news. It's hard to keep up with all this and also to know you're protected. Don't worry, Kapersky's got you covered. Each week, their team looks at the latest news, stories, and topics you might have missed during the week on the Transatlantic Cable Podcast. Mixing in-depth discussion, expert guests from around the world, a pinch of humor, and all with an easy-to-consume style. Be sure to check them out today. What kind of things could we do to potentially influence the way hiring is done and you know these sort of practices with unicorn skilled searches and like just the dysfunctional aspects on the hiring side because you know you're teaching all these tech interview skills for what to expect in the system and how to how to navigate that and succeed even though it's broken but what can we do to to influence the broken itself and help improve these things It's a great question. Breaking it from the inside out is a good start. I think if we can collectively get enough people together within these, especially the bigger companies and say like, hey, we need to do like collectively as an industry, we need to do interviewing differently. 
and then again kind of see that ripple effect of like oh well the fang companies are doing it that way so we're going to do it that way too but i i don't think that's going to be a fast change by any stretch i think there there are always going to be some types of roles where you do have to have a very dedicated very deep knowledge of system internals and how to optimize things and and pure algorithmic types of thinking i think those those kinds of jobs are always going to be out there and so there's no fully getting away from something like a leak code challenge style interview but i think that for a lot of small mid-sized even some large-sized companies they don't have to do interviewing that way but i think like we can we can all stand on our soapbox and yell and scream and do it differently do it differently and it's not going to make any impact at all because those companies are watching other companies for how they're doing it. And so I think gradually over time, I think we can just start to do things differently within our own company. And I think if, you know, for example, if the company that I was working at, if we completely overhauled our interview process, that even if we don't hire somebody, if someone can walk away from that going, wow, that was a cool interview experience. Like I got to tell my friends about this. That's the experience that we want when you walk away from from the company like if if we don't end up hiring if we hire you it's great but even if we don't hire you i want to make sure that you've still got a really cool interview experience that you enjoyed the process that it didn't just feel like another okay well you know i could have just grind on leak code for three months to get through that interview i don't ever want my interviews to feel like that and so i think as as more of us come to this understanding of it's okay to do it differently and then collectively start talking about how could we do it differently like and and there there are companies out there that are doing it differently by the way i'm not saying like everyone in the industry is is doing all these leak code style interviews there are definitely companies out there that are doing things differently and i applaud them for doing that and i i think as awful as it was to have the pandemic kind of shut everything down in early 2020 where like no hiring happened you know, or not a lot of hiring happened over the summer, it did give a lot of companies pause and go, well, hey, since we're not hiring, since we got nobody in the backlog, let's examine this whole interview process and let's see if this is really what we want as a company. And some companies did. They took the time, they took several months and they're like, you know what? Let's burn this whole thing down and start over as far as their interview process goes. And some of them completely reinvented what their interview process was and turn it into a really great process for candidates to go through. So even if they don't get the job, they still walk away going, wow, that was neat. And I think if enough of us start doing that to where candidates then can say, you know what, like I would really prefer not to go through like five or six rounds of interviews because that's tiring and knowing that what you're kind of what you're in for with all the leak code problems and, you know, panel after panel after panel, like nobody wants to sit through that. I think if enough candidates kind of stand up for themselves and say, you know what, I'm looking for a company that has an easier process, so I'm not even going to bother applying. I think there are enough companies out there that are desperately trying to hire that if they start getting the feedback of like, you know what, people don't want to interview with us because our process is lousy, they're going to change the process. But it's going to take time. And unfortunately, it's it's going to drag out because you know companies can be stubborn. Candidates are also going to be stubborn. And uh, it's it's not going to change quickly, but I think I think as companies take the step to change their process, and enough candidates also step up to say, "Nah, you know what? I was going to apply there, or maybe I got through the first couple of rounds, but you're telling me there's like three more rounds to go through. Like, nah, I'm not going to bother." You know, companies are now starting to see candidates ghost them and walk away from the interview process because they're they just don't want to be bothered. 
I think that's a good signal for a company to kind of take a step back and go, okay, we need to change our process to make it better so that people do want to apply and enjoy that interview process as they come through. But it's it's going to take a while to get there. It makes me think about, you know, you were talking early on about open source and the power of open source. And I wonder with this particular challenge, if you set up like a open source hiring manifesto, perhaps, of we're going to collaborate on figuring out how to make hiring better. Well, what does that mean? What is it we're aiming for? And we took some time to actually clarify, these are the things we ought to be aiming for with our hiring process. And those are hard problems to figure out, right? How do, how do we create this alignment between what it is we need to be able to do to be successful day to day versus what it is we're selecting for with our interview process, right? Those things are totally out of whack. I think <laughs> we're at a point, at least in our industry, where it's generally accepted that how we do interviewing and hiring and this, these broken things, I think is generally accepted that it's broken. So that perhaps it's actually, you know, a, a good opportunity right now to start an initiative like that, where we could start collaborating and putting our knowledge together on how we ought to go about doing things better. And if even just by starting something, building a community around it, getting some companies together that are working on trying to improve their own hiring processes and learning together and willing to share their knowledge about things that are working better such that everybody in the industry ultimately benefits from us getting better at these kind of things. As you said, like being able to have an interview process that even if you don't get the job, it's not a miserable experience for everyone involved, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's no reason for that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how we, I mean, what you just explained already is, isn't that how we got code of conducts? Like mm-hmm. everybody yeah. sitting down and being like, okay, this is broken. Conferences are broken. What are we going to all do together? So now why don't we just do the same thing? I really like that idea of starting, you know, kind of an open source initiative on interviewing, like have these big fan companies, you know, be like, uh, you know, I had a really great interview with such and such company. Well, then it all spirals from there. I think that's super, super interesting. Yeah. And like, what is it that made this experience great? You could mm-hmm. you could just have people analyze their interview experiences that they did have, describe, well, what are the things that made this great, that made this work? And likewise, you could collect anti-patterns, like some of the things that you talked about of like, are we interviewing for geolocation skills when, we, when that actually has absolutely nothing to do with our business? Like we could collect these things as these funky anti-patterns of things so that people could recognize those things easier in there. Because it's always hard to see yourself, right? It's hard to see yourself swing, right? An interesting idea along those lines is what if companies said like, hey, we want the community to help us fix our interview process. Like this is who we are. This is what our business does. What kinds of questions do you think we should be asking? And I think that the community would definitely rally behind that and go, oh, well, you're you know, you're an e-commerce platform. So you should be asking people about like shopping cart implementations and, and data security around credit cards and, you know, like have the interview process be about what the company actually does. I think that that would be an interesting thing to like 
kind of ask the community, like, what do you think we should be asking in these interviews? Not that you're going to turn around and go, okay, that's exactly what we're going to do. But I think it, it'll give a lot of companies ideas on, yeah, okay, maybe we could do like a take-home assignment where you build a little shopping cart and you submit that to us and we'll kind of evaluate how you did or what you changed or we're going to give you some code to start with and we're going to ask you to fix a bug in it or something. Like, I think that there's a, a bigger movement now, especially here in Canada and the US, of doing take-home assignments. But I think at the same time, they're pros and cons of doing take-home assignments versus the on-site technical challenges. But what if we gave the candidate a choice as part of that interview process too and say, hey, cool, we want to interview you. Um, let's get through the phone screen. And now that you've done the phone screen, we want to give you the option of, do you want to do like a small take-home assignment and then do a couple of on-site technical challenges? Do you want to do a larger take-home and maybe fewer on-site technical challenges. Like, I think there's always going to be some level of like, okay, we need to see you code in front of us to really make sure that you're the one that wrote that code. I got burned on that back in like 2012, where I thought somebody wrote some code and they didn't. They had a friend write it as their take-home assignment. <laughs> you know, and so I brought them in for the interview and, and I'm like, cool, I want you to fix this bug. And they had no idea what to do. Like they hadn't, they hadn't even looked at the code that their friend wrote for them. It's like, why would you do that? So I think that there's, there's always going to be some amount of risk and trust that needs to kind of take place between the candidates and the companies. But then on the flip side of that, if it doesn't work out, like I really wish companies would be better about giving feedback to people instead of just like ghosting them or like, oh, you didn't pass that round. So we're just not even going to call you back and tell you no, like we're just not ever just going to call. The whole ghosting thing is like by far the number one complaint in, in the tech industry right now is like I applied and I didn't even get a thanks for your resume. Like I got nothing. Or maybe you get some automated reply going, we'll keep you in mind if, you know, if you're a match for something. But again, those applicant tracking systems are biased because the developers building them and the people reading the resumes are going to have their own inherent bias, you know, in the search terms and the things that they're looking for and so on. So like there's, there's bias all over the place that's going to be really hard to get rid of. But I think if companies were to take a, a first step and say like, okay, we're going to talk to the community about what they would like to see the interview process be and start having more of those conversations. And then I think as we see companies step up and make those changes, those are going to be the kinds of companies where people are going to rally behind them and go, I really want to work there because that interview process is pretty cool. And that means the company is, well, it doesn't, doesn't guarantee the company is going to be cool, but uh, it shows that they care about the people that are going to work there. And if people know that the company is going to care about you as an employee you're far more likely to want to work there. You're far more likely to be loyal and stay there for a long term uh, as opposed to like, oh, I just need to collect a paycheck for you know a year to get a little bit of experience and then like job hop and go get a better title, better pay. So I think it really, I think it can come down to company loyalty and stuff too. Yeah, word of mouth, word of mouth travels fast in this industry. Absolutely. And, you know, to bring up the, the the code of conduct thing, and, you know, now people are saying, you know, if straight up this conference doesn't have a code of conduct, I'm not going. Yeah, I agree. It'll be interesting to see how something like this tech interview overhaul kind of open source idea could kind of pick up momentum and what kinds of companies would get behind it and go, hey, we think our interview process is pretty good already, but we're still going to be a part of this and watch other companies step up too. 
when I talked earlier about kind of that ripple effect where like Google, for example, stopped asking how many golf balls fit in a school bus kind of thing. And everyone else is like, yeah, those questions are dumb. Uh, we actually saw this summer, Facebook and Amazon publicly say, we're no longer going to ask dynamic programming problems in our interviews. It's going to be interesting to see how long that takes to kind of ripple out into the industry and go, yeah, you know, we're not going to ask DP problems either. Because again, people want to be like those big companies, you know, they, they want to be billion and trillion dollar companies too. And so they think they have to do everything the same way. And that's not always the case. But there's also something broken in the system too with hiring. It's not just the interview process itself, but it's also just the lack of training. And I've been guilty of this myself where I've got an interview with somebody and I've got like back-to-back meetings. And so I just pull someone on my team and be like, hey, Artie, can you come interview this person? And you're like, I've never interviewed before. I guess I'll go to Leak Code and find a problem to give them. And you're walking in there just as nervous as the candidate is. And you're just throwing some technical challenge at them or you're giving them the technical challenge that you've done, you know, most recently because you know the answer to it. And you're like, okay, well, I guess they did all right on it. They passed or they, you know, I think they didn't do well. But then companies aren't giving that feedback to people either. There's this thinking in the industry of, you know, oh, if we give them feedback, they're going to sue us and they're going to say it's discriminatory and they're going to sue us. Aileen Lerner from interviewing.io did some research with her team and like literally nobody in recent memory has been sued for giving feedback to candidates. And if anything, I think that it would build trust between companies and the candidates to say, hey, this is, this is what you did well. This is what we thought you did okay on. We weren't happy with the performance of the code that you wrote. So we're not moving forward. And now you know exactly what to go improve. Like I was talking to somebody who was interviewing at Amazon lately and they said, yeah, the, the recruiter at Amazon said that I would go through like all these steps and they had like five or six interviews or something to go through. And they're like, yeah. And they told me at the end of it, we're not going to give you any feedback, but we will give you a yes or no. It's like, so if I get a no, I don't even find out like what I didn't do well. I don't know anything about how to improve to want to go apply there in the future. You're just going to tell me no and not tell me why. Like, why would I want to reapply there in the future if you're not going to tell me how I'm going to get better? I'm just going to do the same thing again and again. I'm going to be like that little toy that just bangs into the wall and doesn't learn to steer away from the wall and like go in a different direction. If you're not going to give me any feedback, I'm just going to keep banging my head against this wall of trying to apply for a job and you're not telling me why I'm not getting it. It's not helpful to the candidate and that's not helpful to the industry either. It starts affecting mental health and starts affecting other things. And it, it, I think it erodes a lot of trust between companies and candidates as well. Yeah. I mean, like the experience of just going through trying to get a job and going through the, the rejection. And I mean, it, it's a it's an emotional mm-hmm. experience, an emotionally challenged Absolutely. experience, right? I mean, if, of all things that affect our feels a lot, it's like that feeling of social rejection, right? And so yep. being able to have just healthier relationships and figuring out how how to see another person as a human, help figure out how how you can help guide and support them continuing on their journey so that the experience of the interview doesn't hurt so much, even when the relationship doesn't work out. Like if we could get better at those kinds of things, like there's all these things that if we got better at, it would help everybody. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I, I think that's why like a open source initiative kind of thing maybe makes sense because it's, it's this is one of those areas that if we got better at this as an industry, it would help everybody. And it's worth putting time in 
to learn and figure out how we can do better. And if we all get better at it and stuff, it, it's like there's just so many benefits and stuff from getting better at doing this. Another thing I was thinking about, you know, you're mentioning the language thing of how easy it is to map skills that we learn from one language over to another language such that even if you don't know the language that they're coding in at a particular job, you should apply anyway. And I, I wonder if we had some data around how long it takes somebody to ramp up on a new language when they already know, you know, similar ish languages. Like if we had data points on those sort of things that were like, okay, well, how long did it actually take you? And yep. because of the, the absence of that information, people just assume, well, the only way we can move forward is if we have the unicorn skills, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe if it became common knowledge, that it really only takes, say, a couple months to become relatively proficient so that you can be productive on the team in another language that you've never worked in before. Maybe if that was like a common knowledge thing, that people wouldn't worry about it so much, that you wouldn't see these sort of, you know, unicorn recruiting efforts and stuff. And people would be more inclined to look for more multi-purpose general software engineering kinds of skills that that map to whatever language that you're doing that people would feel more comfortable applying to jobs and going oh cool i get the opportunity to learn a new language so i know that i might may be struggling a bit for a couple months with this but i know i'll get it and then i can feel confident knowing that it's okay to learn my way through those things and i feel like if maybe we just started collecting some data points around ramp up time on those kind of things put a database together to collect people's experiences around certain kind of things that maybe those kinds of things would, would help everyone to just make better decisions that weren't so goofy and out of alignment with reality. Yeah. And there are lots of cheat sheets out there. Like I'm trying to remember the name of it. I used to have it bookmarked, but you could literally pull up two programming languages side by side in the same browser window and see like, oh, if this is how you do it in JavaScript, this is how you do it in Python, or if this is how you write this code in C++, here's how you do it in Java. And it gives you like a one-to-one kind of correlation for like, you know, dozens or hundreds of different kinds of blocks of code. I mean, that's really all you need to get started. And like you said, like it, it will take time to become proficient where you don't have to have that thing up on your screen all the time. But at the same time, I think the company could invest and say, you know what? take a week and just pour everything you got into learning C-sharp because that's the skill we want you to have for this job. It's like, okay, if you're telling me you trust me and you're making me the job offer and you're going to pay me this salary and I get to work in tech, but I don't happen to have that skill, but you're willing to train me in that skill, like, why would I not take that job? You're going to help me learn and grow. You're offering me that job, you know, with a salary. Like those are all great signals to send. Again, I think that, that a lot of companies are missing out and they're like, no, you know, we're not going to hire that person. We're just going to hold out until we find like the next person that's a little bit better. And yeah, I think that that's, that's where some things really drop off in the, in the process for sure. It's like companies hold out too long and next thing they know, like months have gone by and they've wasted tons of money when they could have just hired somebody a long time ago and just trained them. I think the idea of like an open source collective on something like this is is pretty interesting. At the same time, it would be a little bit subjective on sort of the quote unquote, how quickly could someone ramp up on a or on board on a particular technology because everybody has different learning styles. 
And unless you're finding somebody to kind of curate, like if you're a Ruby programmer and you're trying to learn Python, this is the de facto kind of resource that you need to look at. I think it could be a little bit subjective, but I think that there's still some opportunity there to get community input on what should the interview process be? How long should it really be? How many rounds of interviews should there be from both the candidate's experience as well as the the company experience and say, you know, as a business, this is why we have you doing these kinds of things. And that's really what I've been trying to sort of teach as part of the tech interview guide and the daily email series is like, from my perspective in the business, this is why. You know, this is why I have you do a certain number of rounds, or this is why I give you this kind of technical challenge, or this is why I'm asking you this kind of question, because I'm trying to find these signals about you that tell me that you're someone that I can trust to bring on my team. And it's a tough system when, you know, not many people are willing to talk about it, because I think a lot of people are worried that others are going to try to game the system and go, oh, well, now that I know everything about your interview process, I know how to like cheat my way through it. And you, now you're going to give me that job and I really don't know what I'm doing. But I think that at the same time, companies can also have the higher, slow, fire, fast kind of mentality of like, all right, you're not cutting it. Like you're out right away and just rehire for that position. Again, if you're willing to trust and willing to sort of uh, ex- extend that offer to begin with, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's a business decision. It's not a personal thing, but you know, it's still devastating to the person when they don't get the job or if they get fired right away because you know they're they're not uh, pulling their weight. But if they're cheating their way through it, then they kind of get what they deserve to. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to put a pin in this discussion. It is definitely not a great place to end it. I think we should head over to our reflections segment. For me, there were so many things I wrote down. I loved that you said that people's tech journey is like a choose your own adventure. You know, you can learn one thing and then find yourself over here. And then the next thing, you know, you find yourself over here, but you've picked up all these skills along the way. And that's the most important thing is that as you go along this journey, you keep acquiring these skills that ultimately will make you the best programmer that you can be. Also, I really like that, you know, you also said something about it being lifelong learning, you know, tech is lifelong learning and not just, not just the technical skills, it's the people skills, it's the behavioral skills. Mm -hmm. It's, those are the important skills. Those skills are what ultimately it comes down to being in this industry is do you have the desire to learn? Do you have the desire to grow? And I think that should be the most, one of the most important things that companies are aware of when they are talking to candidates, that it's not about can this person do a Fibonacci sequence? It's, can they learn? Are they a capable person? Are they going to show up? Are they going to be a good person to have in the office? Are they going to be a light? Are they going to be supportive? Are they going to be caring? That's the ultimate. That, That right there for me is the ultimate. And thank you for all that insight. Well, I really loved your, your story. And at the, at the very beginning of just, curiosity and how you started started your journey getting into programming and 
and then ended up finding ways to give back and getting really excited about, you know, seeing people's light bulbs go off and how much joy you got from those experiences connecting with another individual and making that happen. And I know we've gotten on this long tangent of of pretty abstract big topics of just like, here's the brokenness in the industry. And what are some strategies that we can solve these like large scale problems? But I think you said some really important things back of just the importance of these one-on-one connections and the real change happens in the context of a relationship. And although we're thinking about these big things to actually make those changes to actually make that difference, it happens in our local context. It happens in our companies. It happens with the people that we interact with on a one-on-one basis and have a genuine relationship with. And if we want to create change, it happens with those little ripples. It happens with affecting that one relationship and that person going and, and having their own ripple effects. And we all have the power to influence these things through the relationships with the individuals around us. I think my big takeaway here is like we've been chatting for an hour and just how easy it is to have conversation about, hey, what if we did this? Like how quickly it can just turn into like, hey, as a community, what if? And just the willingness of people being in the community, wanting to make the community better, wanting to help build up other people around them to make something better about tech. There's a lot of things broken in tech. I'm a white guy in tech. I'm, I've been a part of the problem. I will admit that very forthrightly. But my, my main takeaway here is how easy it is to just sit down and have conversation with people who I've never met before and still come up with great ideas and collaborate and just be open to ideas, open to perspectives and I'm I'm walking away from this conversation going, now I, I wonder what it would take to go build that open source collective on shaking this thing up. And who do I know at different companies that would be open and willing to help back this and put their name on it? And who do I know at different companies? And who do I know in different upper management types of positions that would be willing to take a chance and say, you know what, we're going to try this a little bit different for a quarter and see what kind of impact it has on our team and what kind of impact it has on our hiring. And then report back, you know, do kind of that agile feedback of try a thing, get some feedback, make a change. And I love that we can just sit down and have conversation about it. And it doesn't have to be polarized. It doesn't have to be politicized. It can just be, yep, this is not working. What idea do you have? And I love that you're both willing to entertain ideas and present ideas. And, and I appreciate the, uh, the concept now. I actually kind of want to go do something about it. So yeah, if anybody listening to this wants to do that, uh, you can reach out to me. I'm, I'm on uh, techinterview.guide. Uh, my email's on there. My LinkedIn's on there. You're welcome to contact me at any point. And I would love to keep this conversation going. I already would love to kind of like pick your brain a little bit more. And, uh, and Mandy, if you've got ideas about this too, like let's, let's start pooling this stuff together. You know, let's, let's start being that change, you know? That sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ian, so much for joining us on the show. And I agree, we should totally keep this conversation going. And this is how magic happens, right? You have you sure. have connections and relationships that form just in the context of having a conversation like this. And maybe we can kickstart something awesome. Heck yeah. 
Well, thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you all next week. 